Hello, welcome to another episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Blake, and my role is to help charities to increase their income and impact. On the podcast, I speak to people who can share insights from their experience on a range of topics relating to social impact. You can find out more about my work and the podcast, including all episodes with notes and resources at kedaconsulting.co.uk. That's K-E-D-A Consulting. Please do let me know what you think of this episode. I'd love to know what you take away from it, what you find interesting, what I could do better. If you can leave a review on your podcast player or send me a message by email, LinkedIn or Twitter. All details are at kedaconsulting.co.uk. In today's episode, I talk to philanthropy advisor Emma Beeston. We talk about the role of the philanthropy advisor, the types of philanthropists Emma works with, and the process of helping them to give strategically. We cover some of the thinking around how to choose which charities to support and what makes an effective charity, the pressure of trying to make the perfect decision, and the inevitable need to take risks. We also talk about the debate between trust-based philanthropy and more data-driven approaches, Trends in philanthropy and grant making, including the change in attitudes of the younger generation and increased collaboration between grant makers. Emma also introduces us to her new book, co-authored with Beth Breeze, Advising Philanthropists, Principles and Practice. It's available to order now from the Directory of Social Change, and they believe it's the first ever book specifically on philanthropy advice. I hope you enjoy this episode and please do send me a message or post a review on your podcast player to let me know what you think. Emma Beeston is an independent philanthropy advisor to philanthropists, families and foundations. Her advice guides donors from exploring their values through to implementing their giving to achieve their philanthropic goals. Emma specialises in supporting those new to philanthropy and facilitating multi-generational giving. Prior to her current role, Emma's worked for grant-making organisations including Children in Need, Lloyds Bank Foundation and Comic Relief. Emma co-created with Beth Breeze the Advising Donors module for the Philanthropic Studies Master's Degree Programme at the University of Kent. She's also a lecturer on the Philanthropy, Grant-Making and Social Investment Master's Degree Programme at Bayes Business School, They're both a bit of a mouthful, and a trainer with the Association of Charitable Foundations. She wants philanthropy to be accessible to all and is co-founder of a giving circle, Bath Women's Fund. And she's also just co-authored the book, Advising Philanthropists with Beth Breeze, which can now be ordered online. And so I'm sure we'll get into that during the conversation at some point. So welcome to the podcast, Emma. How are you today? Thanks, Alex. That's very nice to get an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> so what I thought we'll do is start off just by kind of setting some context and maybe kind of a couple of definitions before we get into stuff. So apologies for people already in the world of philanthropy if the first five minutes or so is a bit basic, but I'm sure it'll be helpful for people that are less familiar um, and then we'll get into the detail. So the word philanthropy itself can be defined in a number of ways, you know, like any form of giving can be philanthropy, but then often when we talk about philanthropy, we often think about the really high value stuff. So I think we could start off by just kind of defining what we mean when we talk about philanthropy for the sake of this conversation. And then if you could just give us a bit of a kind of introduction to what a philanthropy advisor does. Cool. Not easy on that. What is philanthropy? <laughs> Massive question. And I'm not sure yeah. I've got, I feel like I should have a better definition. 
I mean, just just for the, just for the purposes of how we're using it today in this conversation, are we talking about the broader sense, or are we talking about the high value stuff? Are we talking about individuals as opposed to foundations, or are we talking about those things kind of as a uh, together as one? Yeah, it, it, it's a tricky one. So I tend to think, in a sort of very shorthand, I kind of swap philanthropy and giving around because philanthropy mm-hmm. is kind of well, it's hard to say. And it has come, it comes with a lot of baggage. So it's, it's important that it's not disconnected, I think, from giving, as opposed to like something like impact investing. But I also think when you think of philanthropy, you think of, you know, generally a white male American tech billionaire. <laughs> and I think it's important that philanthropy is seen as, as wider than that, that other people can and are philanthropists. And the difference between philanthropy and giving is often described as sort of um, philanthropy being maybe a bit more strategic and more about the root causes sometimes. Um, I tend to think of it about giving that's kind of intentional and thoughtful. Um, I think sometimes people can have strategies that are very much about donating and that's fine and giving. Um, so yeah, for me, it's about having for somebody to come and approach me as an advisor I am working with people who have a significant amount of money to give because otherwise they wouldn't be going to an advisor and paying me to help them so there is a reality in my day-to-day that I'm working with people who've got significant amounts of money to give and you know they're looking to do that with thought and with care and to do it well and that's where I think I tend to sit with kind of what is that philanthropy looking like yeah that makes sense and we're talking about both individuals families and foundations as kind of you know that group of potential sort of clients that you work with yeah it's blurry so sometimes individuals sometimes Mm. couples sometimes families sometimes they're giving through a donor advice fund sometimes there's a foundation and sometimes I'm working with um, a foundation so a more kind of formal structure um, advising them so and and they that might have had historic family roots but is now kind of paid mm. staff and, and it's much more like a grant making yeah. charity so they they do blur a little bit and just to give a sense of sort of scale when when we talk about significant amounts of money to give away um what, what's the sort of range that we're talking about what's the sort of lower end of, of of the sort of clients you work with what would be like the smallest gift that they give to an individual charity and, and what would be the kind of upper end of it yeah and you have to remember that I'm a I'm a small philanthropy advisor so I work independently I work on my own so sure. I can only work with a small number of clients because I've only got so many days <laughs> so there are different philanthropy advisors who will work um yeah with, with larger givers so I tend to work with people who are giving I would say around about a million a year so anywhere sort of half a million a million two three million a year that kind of level of giving sure and and just in terms of the sort of individual gifts that they would make within that million is it kind of you know starting from a thousand or ten thousand or does it vary in terms of whether they want to give lots and lots of smaller gifts versus one or two half million gifts Alex you'll just hear me say it depends a lot uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if, yeah. 
they're all interlinked but if you think about people's resources it's actually if you're giving lots and lots of small grants like you know with any any funder that volume grant making needs a lot of resource it tends to be more kind of open call and you have teams of people that you know process applications and make decisions so if you don't have a staff um and you're potentially doing things that are a little bit more strategic you're more likely to be working with a small number of partners so we are talking about larger amounts of size grants so I'm going to pick figures out of the air but you know sort of your 50,000 upwards to to an organization I would say something around about like that and there will also be smaller discretionary kind of gifts as well sure yeah yeah yeah, it's just to just to frame the conversation a little bit, really, because I think we'll, I'm sure we'll sort of talk in in broader terms at some points. But I suppose it, on the whole, I suppose we'll be drawing on your your own experience of working directly with philanthropists. I guess that's the that's the kind of most interesting <laughs> kind of insights again. So yeah, it's just useful to kind of start to build a sense of those types of um, clients that you have. Where should we start with it then? So I suppose what would be useful then is to understand what's the sort of process or the the sort of journey that people go through if they come to you. I think you mentioned that you often work with people that are relatively new to philanthropy. So in in that kind of case, they come along and they've like, what's the sort of starting point and how do you kind of take them through that that thought process? So, yeah, I work with people, I guess most simply in terms of being a philanthropy advisor, I work with people to kind of to help them work out what it is they want to do and then to help them to do that. So it will take different shapes. Some if they're coming out at the start, which is quite common, they'll want to do some good. They'll be thinking about it. But as you know, the options are massive. Exactly where could you where could you give? Who do you give to? You know, all of that, let alone the process of doing it. And so people can quite easily get stuck. And then you put that in that context of, you know, they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want the money to get wasted. They don't want to do any harm. And we've got a kind of media backlog of scrutiny saying that, you know, people are awful and philanthropists mm -hmm. are ego driven people. So it's actually quite a difficult space when you come in and go, I'd like to do some good. And then it's all a bit overwhelming. So that's often where I work with people. And so we have I have a kind of a practical role, which is helping them navigate through the different options. And then it's also about, I guess, build, building people's confidence and adding knowledge about philanthropy and how it all works so that they feel like it is something that they want to do and can do and can go ahead and, and get on with. It's kind of giving permission sometimes mm. to not be perfect and not to get it right. And there's this sense yeah. that there's this magic answer that everybody has all these opinions on what philanthropy shouldn't, shouldn't be like. And therefore you feel like you're kind of missing a trick because you haven't worked out exactly what it is you're supposed to be doing. So it's quite a baffling world if you're new to it. So that's where yeah, I can help mm. with people. So it's conversations. You know, if we're starting from scratch, it's looking at people's values, looking at the amount of motivation, thinking about what giving means to them, how they've done it in the past, what they want to get from it. So a lot starting with them to try and identify kind of cause areas to kind of narrow it down. 
and then bringing in that kind of challenge of reality, I suppose. So it's kind of saying, okay, if this is your area of interest, these are the issues going on, here are the gaps, here is good practice, this is, you know, these are people you might want to talk to or connect with. So it's very much steering kind of starting from where they are usually and then kind of what the world needs them to be in that in that area that they've chosen. And so is that broadly the sort of first step is narrow it down to a particular cause area or maybe kind of narrowing it to one or two or three areas as opposed to that kind of you know yeah. <laughs> the whole landscape um, and and then from there then starting to understand the particular cause area and what the kind of key issues are and starting to learn about where who does what and where they might kind of fit into that exactly and I think it's really hard I I try not to be kind of prescriptive on philanthropy should be one way or another but mm. I really don't see how you can manage without narrowing it down yeah. in some way because otherwise especially if we're talking you know a million pounds it will vanish yeah. very quickly yeah, yeah. so I do think sometimes with a family there are different strands of interest and that's absolutely fine so it might be like you say a small number or it might be one clear focus I know there's a challenge on that because um, there's an argument in philanthropy that it shouldn't be led by the donor's preferences who gets the money obviously there's a very important challenge to that and, and some people would say certain causes are more important than others, need money more than others. So there's always a tension if you're just led by what the donor wants to do, what the philanthropist wants to do. But the only way I know that that mo to keep motivated and to keep learning and to keep dealing with the difficulties is to have something that you care about that's kind of propelling you forward and giving you that energy and enthusiasm and passion. And I think that's kind of interesting tension. Yeah. I think if it comes to like personal money that a philanthropist, you know, an individual or a family want to give away, then unless they're saying they want to fund something that is doing some harm or is kind of really has clearly been proven to be completely ineffective, then I kind of find it it's hard to argue that it shouldn't just be up to them what they want to give it towards because it's kind of like it. If I'm the philanthropist, it's like, well, it's my money. If I want to support animal causes as opposed to children, yeah. or if I want to support a, if an arts organisation or whatever it might be, that's kind of up to me. And it, and there's no, there's no real kind of direct way of comparing across different causes or different organisations in, in some ways. So, yeah. I mean, I agree because at the heart, philanthropy is voluntary and you don't have to do it so I think that's really important because it is about people's expression of their personal values and it's I sometimes think what would happen if you were kind of allocated a cause <laughs> you know say you've got to deal with I don't know the ethics of AI and I've got to deal with something to do with carbon sequestering and mm. if that's not something I care about however important and lovely it is I'm just not going to be giving it the attention and the the thought and the interest that that will help you get better at understanding mm. that that said you can see that if we if people who are wealthy give to what they know in their experience then you get the situation like we have where 
people are giving to universities, mm-hmm. giving to museums, yeah. giving to sort of high arts. And actually, I think it is our role to say, if you're giving to the arts, then thinking about who's missing, who's not gaining access, which arts are not considered valuable in society. And is there something that you can do that supports kind of wider access or other areas of arts that maybe you haven't come across? So I think there is a role to kind of expand and extend people's thinking. So if you want to give to climate and it's about cleaning up the river here, but actually I think I would be saying, as many, many others have, you might want to think about the global south where actually the issue is bigger. It's with them now and they're not the ones that have created the problem. So there's a duty there. So I think, as I mentioned before, there is always this tension of you want to support people to do what they want to do. But you've also got a little bit of kind of questioning, challenging, pushing to help them think about it in a wider context. Yeah, I suppose it's more nuanced, isn't it? It's about kind of setting out here's the whole picture and here are the different options and and you're an advisor, so you can advise, you know, this is what I think would have the most impact. Um, but ultimately it's their choice as to which particular yeah. area they might might support. And they don't have to listen to yeah, me. <laughs> they don't want yeah, yeah. and that's absolutely yeah. fine. Yeah. But I think about saying that you're entering this world it is more complicated and I think than people might think but there is a myth that giving is easy and it isn't to do it well so I think there is a duty to kind of introduce people to the complexity without putting them off yeah and yeah there are so many myths aren't there around charities and charity effectiveness and how you assess you know yeah. which particular organization to support and all of those sorts of things what what's your experience of how people think about choosing individual charities to support? So maybe once you've done some of that work around identifying a particular cause area, um, you've got to know that kind of issue a bit more. And I suppose, yeah, it'd be useful to to understand before that for your clients. Typically, are they doing calls for proposals and people making applications or and and are they open calls or invitations or are they kind of choosing who they're going to support and then making that probably having a meeting and doing things like that but if essentially then making the choice and making that that gift so what what's the sort of process and then and then understanding how they choose to support one versus another in any kind of given field so generally um if, if we're talking about kind of individuals and families at the level that I'm talking, it tends to be proactive giving rather than issuing an open call. Um, If they're working in quite a broad space and actually an open call would be the best way of finding who's working in that area and who's good, then I would encourage kind of collaboration and piggybacking of funders who are already working in that area so it's they've already got the resources you've already got the systems in place and processes so giving money to another funder and who's got the grant making apparatus makes a lot of sense so i'd certainly encourage collaboration and partnership in in those situations if they've got a, a an area that's quite niche and it's relatively easy to do kind of desk based research or ask for recommendations or kind of route around and you know find out who's working in an area 
then you can do that proactively quite effectively and it saves people's time compared to an open call so if you go and you can kind of go right, i'm interested in this area actually there's only in whatever country it is there's only a small number of groups working in that area that's really helpful because you can do all the research on all the public information available on them you can look at which looks like a likely match which looks like they're doing good work and then ask for a meeting convene those conversations sometimes there's a proposal and a sort of written formality to it sometimes it's conversation um so it's very much coming from that kind of do your homework first and then reach out and make a connection with the people that are actually there doing the work um so that's probably the most common way it works so before we go on to the second part of the question can i just jump in so that idea which makes a lot of practical sense around kind of giving the money to a, an existing funder who already funds in that particular cause area and already has an open call for applications it makes sense but how do people feel about that because i would imagine that would feel a lot less satisfying than giving a couple of big gifts to particular charities and you know engaging with them meeting the chief exec and learning about the work they do more in depth as opposed to handing it over to another funder who then gives it out to however many different charities. So do you get that pushback or? Yeah, I, mean, I suppose it's usually the driver. I mean, it's how you sort of frame it. I suppose it's usually the driver is that people just don't want to get involved in the right. admin side, <laughs> but they do still want to hear how things are they may want to be involved in decision making they may put some parameters around it they may you know still want to learn and meet and, and be part of conversations so it's not just necessarily a kind of have the money and off you go and and when I say funder I think you might be immediately jumping to maybe quite a big one and actually some of them are, are already kind of small family trusts and it's it's quite close work anyway it's not like a huge organization but it's kind of a well you're already doing this can we help you um i've been pleasantly surprised about how little ego there often is i think if you are our typical view of a philanthropist is quite ego driven and that really isn't my experience of people you know, not wanting naming, not wanting profile, not wanting, you know, a lot of attention, but just want to know that they're doing good is really the genuine, authentic motivation. So it's not as big an issue as you might think. Interesting. <laughs> Bearing in mind, I always have to say this, that I work with a very small self-selecting sample of people I work with. Yeah, and I very guess... lucky that there's not a lot of ego. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of bias in that sample isn't there in that they've chosen to seek out an advisor to help them make those decisions and yeah I suppose I've philanthropists that I've met in my career have probably been more at the stage of kind of wanting to do it all themselves and so have been wanting more involvement in in that kind of process and some of them do because they want and like you say if it makes sense to make to choose a small number of organizations and have relationships with them that's really good but it's not it's not that they're being driven to do it themselves they actually are wanting that kind of level of engagement so it's not it's not ego driven 
desire, I don't think. And then the second part of the question was that it was the part about how you choose individual organizations. And so you mentioned some of the process around, let's maybe take the example of if you're doing it proactively and you've identified there's a handful of organizations working in that space, in that kind of geographic area, how do you assess which of those appears to be most effective or doing good work? You know, what what are some of the factors that you kind of look at there? I think hopefully it'll be the kind of usual things that get looked at, say, kind of looking at at governance, at financials, at strategy, at leadership, you know, the usual things. Um, (laughs) If I'm going to have another, it depends, Alex, because it also depends, you know, if it's very competitive in that space, then you have a higher bar, don't you, of of which ones, therefore, you're looking for because you can pick and choose the, the strongest. If you're trying to build an area, then you can accommodate the fact that they're not as good at something. You know, they, they've their track record isn't great, but they've got a really good connection with that community and they've got a lot of expertise in that area. So that it's always a bit of a weighing up because you're not always looking for the, the shiniest, strongest, you know, best track record sometimes in, in, in a particular field. It might be more important to help you know, smaller, more grassroots organisations develop and back them for other reasons. So there's the sort of technical, the kind of governance, due diligence, risk, appetite, is that all kind of matching up? But then there's also the things like the ethos um, and, you know, just how well they're connected, what their expertise is, what they're trying to do, because sometimes there's no track record, but there's an aspiration and you're basically taking a punt to back an organization that looks good I think what always kind of matters is that the organization is kind of confident in where it's at so they know why they do what they do why they've chosen the particular approach that they have and out of everything that's the bit that I think comes across however you want to cut it on which bits of you know policies you're looking at or or, all the sort of the drier stuff it's always down to do they know what they're doing and can they basically talk to you about that which gives you confidence that they know what they're doing they're honest about it here are the challenges here's what we're trying to do this is what we know this is what we've tried and if you can get to that open conversation that's always the most beneficial to kind of really get a sense of an organization and and what they're trying to do yeah I think that that sounds about right to me um I think as you say there's the that sort of finance and governance type stuff you can kind of look at the, the accounts and things like that and kind of you know it's more a case of tick in the box that there's nothing that concerns you I suppose more often than anything else and you I suppose you know if we're talking about good organizations you let's assume that all of that stuff is in place and then the you're looking more at that question of trying to assess how effective is this organization at delivering on that mission the mission aligns with what the funder what the philanthropist wants to do so how how effective are they in that and I think that's the yeah really interesting area because it's 
quite difficult to kind of codify that. And I suppose that's why it's been debated for so many years by people working in charities and in philanthropy and in fundraising and kind of at all angles. And in most cases, there isn't the kind of robust academic or scientific evidence to show one intervention or another works really well. In a small number of cases, that's there, but more often than not, it isn't um, or not to that level. And I also think you've got to remember that philanthropy, one of its strengths is that you can take risks Mm -hmm. and it hasn't got the accountability that you know your local authority grant scheme would have so that is quite a luxury position to be now you'll get some philanthropists who are absolutely driven by the data and the evidence and the metrics and they want a theory of change and they want to see the impact and you know that's one approach and that's good but you'll have others where it's much more i believe in what you're trying to do i trust you to do it I'm basically giving in solidarity with your work as a contribution and they're less worried about the impact or the impact is going to be years down the line contested, you know, tricky to measure, tricky to pin down. So I think it is really, we all know it's really hard to go, you know, let's line everything up, let's assess it all and let's say which one has the most impact. Um, I know there'll be researchers and scientists who will argue with me, but I think, you know, it's a really hard thing to do because you're just not, yeah, you're just not comparing. And sometimes I think uh, philanthropists are in a nice position where they can take a punt because it's up to them and it's their money. And if it doesn't work, then they're lucky. Other people argue, therefore, you know, you're wasting precious resources. But I think, again, we're back to that lovely tension and nuance in the messy middle. Yeah. Um, But I think I would agree with you in that uh, having those conversations with people, you get that sense of, do you really know what you're talking about? Do I trust that you're you're really involved in it? You really know the communities that you're there to serve and, and you you really understand the issues and you you know you're working collaboratively where it makes sense to and all of those kinds of things yeah as i say it's it's kind of it's difficult to um kind of objectively codify and measure that so it's it brings up another challenge doesn't it in that then sometimes it's the organizations who have the leaders that are able to articulate those things um and others that maybe are less able to then miss out for the for those sorts of reasons although the work they're doing might be every bit as good so yeah it's just such an interesting messy field isn't it in terms of trying to navigate all of those things and you as you said at the beginning that's where the overwhelm can can come in isn't it when you're trying to put it put the money to best use and there's no no kind of clear perfect way of doing it you just have as you say you have to kind of take that risk and make that punt at some point you put that really well, Alex. And it, and it also, I think it gives that sense that you're the only one and that there's the, you mm. have to get it perfectly. Whereas actually, you know, there will be government funding, there'll be other funding, there'll be other funders, there'll be other philanthropists. Yeah. And so hopefully between you, you cover what matters and is what important and you can affect change. So it's not... I think it's quite a pressured place to think I'm 
one person that's going to affect mm. this change and I've got to get it absolutely right in order for you know not make any mistakes in order for this not to be kind of a massive failure and I think that puts too much pressure on people as well yeah it's the really focus on the conversation I think is quite interesting because mm. you're right some people are better about talking about what they do than others I think enlightened leaders who aren't very good at you know who recognize themselves that they're not the most articulate and bring other people you know project yeah, workers yeah. that can talk about the work that's always really good um but it you do always have to question I think like who's missing you know who have I not who have I not spotted because they haven't got mm. that profile but will be doing really good work and who certainly if you're trying to search proactively it's much easier if there's something very clear so if somebody's working with I don't know say it's mental health young people's mental health you can find charities that are very much about young people's mental health but there'll be all sorts of other groups that will be supporting young people's mental health but it'll be mm. something else it'll be boxing or it'll yeah. be and that's when I think it can be quite tricky on the proactive side of things to actually be able to identify good work that will be happening but because it's not labeled a certain way you're going to miss that's true yeah yeah and again it's even even if you've narrowed it, it down to young people's mental health then there's so much more narrowing down to do isn't oh, yeah. it, in terms of you know is it people with very complex needs and acute mental health issues is it taking a more kind of preventive approach and people you know kind of further down that pathway is it um as you say is it using things like sport to improve mental health or is it more kind of um counseling and you know different types of interventions and yeah just so many different types of approaches and you want to support a small local one in one particular area or a national one that's kind of raising awareness and addressing policy issues and things yeah so much to consider and that's exactly a philanthropy advice yeah, yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no trying to go, yeah. right, let's kind of cut. Change. So it's partly interest and then it's partly is the research, is there is there evidence of the research, what people are saying? And I think in those conversations, what's also a really nice thing is that you can ask people what they need and what they want, as opposed to sort of you're not going in saying we're looking to fund XYZ. You can just say what's going on where are the gaps what do you need what are your priorities what can we help with and that's a very that's a nice position to be in mm. to be able to do that yeah. I think it, there's some really interesting examples in the kind of richest people in the world biggest philanthropy kind of um, individuals as well as now when you look at at the moment the kind of juxtaposition between Jeff Bezos and um, Mackenzie Scott who you know, on the one hand, you've got Jeff Bezos saying, well, I've got to, you know, get it exactly right. And kind of having that, putting that pressure of doing things in, in the right way and saying, you know, this philanthropy business, it's really, really hard, isn't it? I don't know. That will get there eventually, but I've got to work out all this stuff. And then you've got Mackenzie Scott saying, yeah, well, you know, we did some research, we found some good organizations and we gave them really big amounts of money and let let them get on with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, really sort of different approaches. And then thinking back, I suppose the previous generation in a way of, 
of those really large scale philanthropists, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, kind of taking that very focused approach of this working out where they're going to invest and really getting into it. And then Warren Buffett saying, well, they've done all that work. You know, why would I duplicate that? I'll just give all of my money to them and they can they can do what they're going to do with it. Yeah, and it's always, I mean, it's why it's such a good space to work in because it's endlessly fascinating and these debates mm-hmm. are technically challenging but also philosophical and spiritual and political all, all mixed in. So, yeah, this debate between the kind of trust-based approaches and the more kind of directed approaches is going to be running and running for quite a few years yeah I think it's interesting times and then you've got the younger generation and and you know making huge Mm. sweeping assumptions but that are very interested in kind of wealth inequality and justice and obviously climate as well so that's that's bringing change with itself of itself as well so looking more at you know why do I have this money and what is it for and what am I going to do with it Mm -hmm. beyond just yeah I've I've made my money and I'm going to give it away it's kind of challenging the whole system which is interesting and is that is that that sort of thinking of a, a younger generation is that particularly where they've inherited that wealth or is that kind of across the board where they're young people that have made significant wealth as well or yeah, I mean, I suppose from my experience, it's, it's younger people who have kind of inherited it or it's, it's the family business, it's the, the money is coming from there rather than at the moment those that have made it for themselves. I'm sure others will be supporting them. But from my experience, it's more the next generation um, coming into a family who, yeah, who are sort of thinking about the money and, and not just them coming in, but like, there's lots of conversations about from the other generations about kind of not wanting to give your children too much money. And there's quite a lot of people that have come out and talked about that, about, mm. you know, not wanting to leave money to their children and not wanting to give them too much, not wanting it to be a burden. So we've got the the two attitudes kind of coming together, which is quite interesting. Um, and on the, on the other trend you mentioned around the kind of trust-based philanthropy across to the sort of directed and data-driven type of um, approach Uh, do you see shifts in that conversation or do do you think that's just going to be those two opposing kind of schools of thought that are going to run along forever or do you do you see a particular kind of direction of travel at the moment well I'm not sure is which way it's going to settle actually I think we're very good at polarizing things and so my hunch is that we'll settle somewhere in the middle you know because because <laughs> if you have got evidence for something working better than something else why would you ignore it but also those groups themselves wouldn't be ignoring it so I think it's a funny it's a funny space I think it's more about and and sometimes I think somebody with a vision and a lot of money that back you know can drive through a lot of change that might be you know might be positive so I'm a little bit pragmatic in the middle soul I'm afraid in and I obviously trust and listening to communities has had been kind of squished Mm -hmm. down and that's the one that's on the rise but I read an article just this morning which was 
this new fad means all our giving is going to least effective approaches. So there is that pushback and, and I don't think it's going to sell for a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a rubbish answer, Alex, sorry. I suppose I'm thinking that, yeah, I kind of think yeah. that both matter if you've got them. So if you're supporting a social movement of activists that are, you know, campaigning for a change, I'm not sure mm -hmm. what the point of measuring much there is. You're, you're hoping that, you know, you can look and see who they are. You can look at their reach. You can look at their messages. You can look at what they're trying to do. But, you know, I'm not sure how meaningful research is to, to wanting to do that kind of work versus sometimes you've got, I don't know, something that's been tried and didn't work and you've got evidence mm. to say it. So why would you do it again? So there's they've both got a value. Um, I think on research, there's a lot of really on the sort of evidence side, there's a lot of really interesting work around the sort of ethics of evaluation and equity in research because it's it's very much who gets to decide what topics get looked at when you're looking at impact impact for who who's asking what question you know so it's it's very much that that kind of data size is getting caught up quite rightly with kind of issues of equity and community and and ethics and so I think a messy middle will be winning out as per usual in that both and it'll depend <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it always depends <laughs> yeah i think it's um i always kind of think of it as being a spectrum of you know you've got the kind the the two ends of it and then most philanthropists and funders are kind of dotted along that line somewhere in the middle there were some that are kind of at the polar ends and then most of them are somewhere along that path maybe closer to one end or the other or or bang in the middle and and some that yeah. move along and some that move backwards and forwards and i think then there are certain funders that you know go to much more kind of quantitative approaches and then shift back to more kind of relational approaches and kind of swing backwards and forwards a bit yeah i mean say i don't know say you were giving to say you wanted to support museums so you be you could be looking at you know the numbers of people in that museum you could look at who's coming to that museum you could do measurements of kind of what they get from it you could probably look at something about the quality of their experience and what they're getting and what they're seeing but then you've got things like should those artifacts be in the museum or should they be returned <laughs> to the country of origin yeah. i'm not sure what metrics would make you go right okay we'll return Mm -hmm. the statues to Benin you, you, it's about ethics isn't it and a lot of the time sometimes it's it's much more values driven or solidarity driven and I think that's good yeah. I think you probably need both I can wait away about this it's very nice talking to you about this Alex <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all interesting stuff <laughs> are there any other particular kind of issues or trends that we want to pick up on around philanthropy and grant making it's okay if you think we've kind of covered the main ones i'm just going to cut the question but i don't know what else we might want to pick up yeah so for me i think i when i worked in grant making which is a while ago now the issues of kind of power were known but mm -hmm. weren't really getting much traction so i do think 
slightly ironic but after I've left I think grant making has got a lot more interesting and <laughs> I think the fact that it is shifting and changing and being more dynamic rather than being quite a comfortable place to be I think is really good um, so I love seeing the change and that people are not just going well this is our system and this is how we do it and this is our focus but are questioning you know themselves and thinking about how what they contribute and how they create blocks and barriers I think that's great I think what I find really intriguing is where we're going to get with technology so at the moment we're mm. at the point where AI can write a grant bid and we have grant management software that can um, has algorithms that it can assess a bid so you've completely lost potentially you can lose the human out of the mm. grant making process and I'm quite intrigued by that because I think it you know there's lots of good reasons for using technology to address bias and and, and things like that but I do think if we start taking people out of the grant making process I kind of think we're missing the point that we're talking about love and we're talking about compassion and we're talking about helping and and if an algorithm's talking to an algorithm what mm -hmm. are we left with so I don't have any answers but I think that's a fascinating trend that we have uh, are just at the start of seeing what that might look like there's already been some sort of experiments on randomized grant making and I'm a little bit nervous for taking humans completely out of the system not mm. just as a profession and <laughs> losing jobs, but just what are we saying if if it is this bid A hits target X, Y, Z and gets money? Is that fair? Is that better? Is that quicker? Or are we losing something? Yeah, I'm not sure how how it would work in practice in terms of the kind of application side of things, because I think there are obviously certain elements that could be done automatically and would definitely be beneficial you know all of the kind of organizational information the stuff from the accounts rather than having someone individually inputting that each time they write a bid but in terms of explaining the need that's being addressed and how the work's delivered and the outcomes it generates and things like that I'm not sure how an AI would be able to do that without a human feeding it, the information or a human putting all the relevant information onto the charity's website for an AI to then kind of go and capture it. So it might be that there's the process is different, but I don't think you can take the human out of it. Or maybe I'm just not up on the latest tech enough to understand quite how it works. I think you're right. <laughs> I don't think we're not there yet. And, and of course, data has to come in from somewhere and clearly grant makers should just be reading the accounts and anyway, but that's beside the point. But I do, I, I'm a bit of, no, I'm, I'm not a Luddite, I like technology for a lot of reasons, but I'm slightly nervous about some of the simplification of this whole transaction when actually it is, like you say, about conveying complex information and it's about people and I'm a little bit unsure about how we'll go technology wise I think it's an interesting trend but I hope you're right in that we won't be able to do it 
And maybe a more positive trend that I think is good and we touched on, but is that increase in collaboration and mm. collective giving. And yeah, I, I think that's good. I think that's obviously came out of kind of COVID and that sense of, you know, the world is got so many urgent issues we kind of need to pull together to address them but I think the fact that that has lasted um is a good sign and there's a growth in you know I obviously co-founded the giving circle and but I think we see a growth in that interest in in giving together and I think that's that's a real positive is that something that's happening more so now do you think so I can't put my finger on lot of examples of it I don't think I know during the pandemic there were a few I suppose London Community Response Fund was the probably the most obvious one and there may be one or two others but I, I don't I've not noticed seeing more now than kind of before then if you go on the you know ACF have got their funders collaborative hub yeah if you go on there when that first came out there are only a few on there and now there are loads and some okay. of them are big collaborations some of them mm. small but it definitely feels like whether the reality has shifted it definitely feels like there's an appetite and it's something that people will automatically kind of look for yeah. right who is working on this can we work together in in a way that I don't think was there before no that's good and I suppose it's just it's that collaboration that's a little bit less visible um so I suppose I'll see it if like there's a a fund that you can apply to and you see that there are multiple funders who have put money into it and then there's a mm -hmm. kind of central place that you're going to. Um, whereas, of course, funders will collaborate in different ways, um, just in less visible ways in terms of potentially funding together or potentially just navigating that a particular space in terms of who's doing what and that, that side of things, which is, you know, really valuable as well. Yeah, you're right. There, there would be pooled funds, but yeah, there's also these networks that are about, you know, even if you have like a shared one person, you know, all together looking at the research in an area rather than everybody doing it yeah. separately or seeing if you can come up with one outcomes framework for that everybody can use again rather than having <laughs> yeah. several million different ones. So mm. I think those it's it's part maybe sometimes just about conversations and knowledge exchange but I do think that there'll be more pooled funding as well on the back of that yeah probably getting close to wrapping up oh, we've we've not spoken about the book at all do you want to tell us a bit about what the what the book's all about and where people can find it yep so um it's with co-written co with Beth Breeze and as far as we know, we think it's the first book on advising um, philanthropists. So the reason we wrote it is because we teach advising donors as part of the, the Kent Masters course. There isn't a lot of information. All the information is about you know philanthropy and about how to do it, how not to do it. But there is this whole ecosystem around philanthropists that are advising them that just are not well known and not well understood. So the book is very much an introduction to that world. So independent philanthropists like me, but you know, people working in banks or in community foundations and, and different spaces and, and focused on, you know, maybe the arts or focused on effective altruism or focused on different things. So there's a mixture of people. And what we got to do, which was lovely, 
because through COVID and the whole lockdown, we got access to people that we wouldn't normally get access to online. So we interviewed over 40 different philanthropy advisors around the world and just got them to tell us what they do and how they work. So the book's got portraits of some of them throughout the book, as well as quotes from lots of them. So it's very much about kind of what is philanthropy advice? Who are these people? What are they doing? What, you know, what's the process day to day, but also what are the ethical kind of decisions involved in doing this work, which we've kind of touched on earlier about kind of how much are you supporting somebody? How much are you challenging somebody? So those kind of issues that are really hard to navigate, we kind of discuss as well. And then looking at, at philanthropy advice kind of in a wider context. So um, and the wider world. So what is its kind of responsibility beyond itself? And yeah, we think it's the first one. So it's very exciting. It's certainly the first book I've written. So <laughs> that's been a whole journey. Um, and yeah, it's very nice that it's finally, I've seen the cover and it's nearly, nearly, nearly there. Awesome. Um, and who... Is it just for anyone that's interested in philanthropy or other kind of particular is there a particular audience in terms of who would benefit reading it? I think because it's a first, it's quite introductory, it's working quite hard. So it's partly it'll be interested of interest to people who are working as philanthropy advisors because you get to hear what other people are doing in a way that mm. you maybe don't normally, and or people that are thinking about being a philanthropy advisor. But I also think, you know, if you're you know a fundraiser or a, and you're trying to get your head around who these advisors are I come from the point that we're allies in this mm -hmm. and we should be working together so hopefully it'll give people some insight and the same as sort of charity leaders and I think we're also looking not just us but you know there's a whole sort of movement I suppose looking at that wealth um, management financial management industry to make sure that people are aware that philanthropy is a choice within that kind of within your financial options and that actually it would be great if your accountant or your tax person or your wealth manager you know started saying what about your philanthropy what have you thought and so we'd love to see it being just more accepted that it's a thing and philanthropy advice is is useful and has a value and is something that actually we we raising philanthropy with clients is a good thing to be doing so we're reaching out to everybody we're trying to persuade the world you know is quite unknown and actually mm. i think it's it's be good to grow it and and grow awareness of what people are doing well thank you very much for joining and for chatting through everything that was really interesting and hope hope the book launch goes well yeah <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, it's nice to be there finally. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end. Just one more thing before you go. If you listen to the podcast, I'd love to hear what you think. You can either leave a review on Spotify, Apple, etc. or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter at alexblake underscore K-E-D-A or just drop me an email. For details on all episodes with notes and links to resources, head to our website, kedaconsulting.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care.